The other big one is that China put a ban on mining. Match the weight of the protocol to the size of the transaction. It competes with the SWIFT wire network and with Western Union. Because when you say, well, this kind of a demand is okay and that kind of a demand isn't okay, it feels a little judgmental to me. It's about 150 exa hashes per second. Welcome to the OrionX Download. This is a podcast where we discuss and simplify the big ideas in technology that are changing the world. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of OrionX Download. So it's been about a year since Steve Perrineau and I got together and decided to do an annual review of all things crypto. Well, we didn't know it was going to be annual at that time, but it's ended up being an annual review. And that was when Bitcoin was just starting to break away, and we were not really sure whether it was going to take or not. And in fact, it obviously has. So this time we're going to talk more about the recurring FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt, and misconceptions about crypto, especially about Bitcoin. We're going to have a list of that. And then uh, we're also going to tease another edition of the Crypto Super 500 list that Steve puts out. So Steve, glad to have you. I'm glad we managed to get this scheduled because it's been like four weeks that we're trying to do this and we're finally here. How are you? Hi, Shaheen. Yeah, good to be with you and uh, looking forward to our discussion here today. So let's do a little bit of a tee up of Crypto Super 500. You've been busy at work doing that. Maybe you want to give us a sneak preview and we're going to do another podcast specifically on that in the next week or so. Okay, well, Shaheen, what the Crypto Super 500 is, is a list that we put together twice a year and we do it in conjunction with the two major supercomputing conferences that are held in, in Europe in June. And of course, SC21 is coming up this month, going to be held in St. Louis this year, always in November. And so we put the list out in conjunction. And what we do is we look at the largest mining pools. And our attitude is that the crypto mining industry is a specialized form of supercomputing. And what they do is they put together these pools or farms in racks of you know large numbers of generally ASIC-driven and sometimes GPU-driven crypto mining rigs. And those things get faster and faster every year. And the scale of the whole industry has been climbing rapidly. And the last list in June, we were approaching almost $40 billion of annual economic value that was coming out through the top three coins. The top three mine coins are Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Dogecoin, which has gotten a little more hmm. attention as of late. <laughs> yes, it has. And... Perhaps surprising to most people is that uh, right now in 2021, Bitcoin and Ethereum are running sort of neck and neck in terms of their annual economic value. And uh, last time around, it was a little shy of 20 billion each, I think. I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be. You'll have to wait for the full list, but they're, they're kind of in a neck and neck race this year. The other big one is that China put a ban on mining. It all came down in late May and particularly in June. And they essentially shut it all down at midnight on June 19th. And it rolled out through the different main provinces where mining was happening. But the biggest shutdown occurred in Sichuan, one of the top four mining provinces there. And we believe that the reason they shut it down is primarily their digital currency that they're working on, but also maybe concerns about how much coal is going into their 
power plant production and so forth. So we address those issues as well. But there's been a big shift in the mining. It's moved west and we'll, we'll go into some of the details of that in the report as well. This is like your sixth or seventh edition of this report. We've been going for three years now. So the first one was in November of 2018. Mm-hmm. And now here we are with the seventh one coming out in November of 2021. I think right there, that's fabulous. Because now you've got a body of data that goes back and you can start doing historical analysis. So everybody, please do look for it. So back to FUD and misconceptions. I've got a running list of them because literally every two months, somebody brings it up and you have to fish it up and like make the same arguments all over again. It's almost becoming like a frequently asked question sort of a thing. So the first thing that always comes up is intrinsic value, that cryptocurrencies have no intrinsic value. What do you really have? And therefore, it's all like a toilet bulb craze. So what, what do we say to that? I've got some thoughts, but I want to hear yours first. Sure. Well, there are 13,000 cryptocurrencies now, <laughs> and uh, mo- most of them are worthless, or at least worth very, very little. The ones that have a market cap of, of more than a billion you know, run to the couple of dozen or some number like that. And the fall off in terms of market cap and rank on the list is very, very steep. It's like a minus over a minus one power law. It's very concentrated at the top with the top two having 60% of all the market cap. Cryptocurrency with the latest rise, and we've hit new highs on Bitcoin and Ethereum, has reached uh, $3 trillion in aggregate cryptocurrency market cap. But over 40% of that is in Bitcoin, close to 20% of that is in Ethereum, and then you go down from there. So really, you get two-thirds of the market once you've gone you know, four or five positions down the list. Now, what provides intrinsic value? Yeah, what is intrinsic value? In our view, intrinsic value comes from a combination of utility, security, and scarcity. And those are best enforced by proof-of-work consensus algorithms. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can still have value without doing proof-of-work. There are many different consensus algorithms that we find in the space, notably proof-of-stake. But the highest security and the the highest scarcity are enforced by proof-of-work. Right. You can have high utility using other consensus algorithms. But the top two on the list, Bitcoin and Ethereum, are both using proof-of-work right now, and they have the highest intrinsic value. And they all have good scores in all three of those areas. Right. You would say that Bitcoin is weighted more to the side of scarcity and security, and Ethereum is weighted more to the side of utility. Right on. Right on. Now, I have a more, in my mind, straightforward view of intrinsic value. You know, when I think about why something is perceived to have intrinsic value, and I follow that logic all the way to as far as I can take it, where I end up is what I call expected recurring demand. If there is no expected recurring demand for something, then it's not going to have any value because nobody's going to want it. And if more people are going to want it than they did yesterday, well, then maybe the value is going to go up if the supply is going to be lower than the incremental value. So to me, it's really not the question of why it is valuable, but the fact that there is demand no matter what the reason. Because when you say, well, this kind of a demand is okay and that kind of a demand isn't okay, it feels a little judgmental to me. Like, oh, your kind of demand isn't qualified to be called demand. So who cares why somebody wants it? Somebody wants it. So maybe this is a little too technical kind of an analysis, quote unquote, but that's where I end up 
So what do you what do you think about that? Well, to me, that's like it's as simple as that. I think what you just described is utility. In other words, utility is yes, that it's useful and people are willing to pay for it. Right. So what you described is another way of saying utility. You did add in the scarcity aspect into that discussion. The supply and demand part, right? Right. And and the supply part, which is scarcity. And the other piece, though, that's very important, and we're talking about technology here. This is monetary technology or value technology or technology for assets. So the security is very important. And that's where the blockchain concept comes in. And the security is provided in two different ways. One is by chaining all the transactions together a block at a time and using cryptographic hashing techniques to link those. And the other is the consensus algorithm that allows you to say, okay, this is the block that goes into the ledger of record that everyone's going to recognize. So to me, this is like, there you go. That's intrinsic value because it's coming right out of the thing itself and people want it. And there's some scarcity. So there is utility, there's scarcity, and that allows the supply and demand curve to actually operate. Now, the utility is different. And this is why one reason why we've seen so many cryptocurrencies appear is they say, well, okay, we're going to do a utility that's based around storage, you know, so you have Filecoin. Right. Our utility is for storage, and we're really focused on that. Ethereum is, their utility is focused on smart contracts, enabling you to kind of think of it as a world computer and and do all different sorts of things where there's some sort of smart contract underneath that. And that's given rise to initially ICOs, initial coin offerings, and later Mm -hmm. some sort of maybe security offerings or tokenization of different kinds of value. And then that led into NFTs, right? Right, right. Like, let's hold off on NFTs because I want to go down the list of FUD stuff. So the next FUD is criminal activities. People say, oh, all this crypto stuff is used substantially for criminal activities. And, you know, I don't want to have any piece of it. Mm -hmm. And I think the data shows very much otherwise. While there is sort of a perception of anonymity and how you can lose track, in reality, a lot of the main coins are not exactly the ones you want to use if you want to misbehave. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, these coins have ledgers that are readable by anyone. That's sort of the conception, right? So at least some information can be extracted directly from the blockchain. Now, a wallet is usually identified by a a numerical representation. So you can see this thing flowed from this wallet to that wallet, and it was that much, and it happened at that time, right? So Hmm. That doesn't tell you whether you had a bad actor at the other end or not, but there are more and more techniques for chain analytics, and these are being used by law enforcement agencies today to track criminal flows, money laundering, etc. If we look at Bitcoin in particular, people refer to it as being pseudo-anonymous. Right. The other aspect of it, and the big move by governments, has been to enforce KYC AML on all the exchanges so that they know where the on-ramps were. Where was fiat money onboarded into the cryptocurrency world? And if if you know that, and then if you can do chain analytics, you can start tracing flows through the system, even if the money bounces from exchange to exchange, because they're also through the Financial Action Task Force implementing the travel rule, which says, you know, exchanges have to say, okay, where was the money sent to? Was it sent to another exchange, for example? Mm-hmm. Now, you see various estimates as to how much criminal activity is going on in, in Bitcoin as the largest one. I, I've seen estimates as low as 1% to 
Yeah, uh, that's also, yeah. There is certainly a lot more fraudulent activity that's happening using physical cash. Yeah, onward bills yeah. <laughs> have been the traditional choice yeah. of bad actors. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think that the pseudonymity and, and, and that aspect of it is balanced with the transparency and the regulations that are coming. And the Bitcoins where there is some liquidity and you could actually, those are the ones that are the hardest to get in there and do something without leaving you know, footmarks. And there are some other coins that have zero knowledge proofs and other privacy enhancing features. There's mixing where you mix transactions. So, but this always happens, you know, when you're trying to battle counterfeiting or money laundering, it's, it's a technology arms race. Bitcoin is a technology. It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. Right. All right. Next item. Next item is energy usage that, oh my God, Bitcoin is using more energy than such and such country and electricity is uh, thrown away, then that's a really big issue. And of course, that's why, you know, such and such country has a problem with it. And in reality, there's been a lot of evolution there as well. Yes. Uh, Probably the most authoritative source for this is the Cambridge Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index. And you can go to their website at cbeci.org. And they are part of the CCAF, which is the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, and they are part of the Judge Business School, which is part of the University of Cambridge. And I just love the way the British try to use very, very long names for things. <laughs> that's <laughs> and that's waste, usually my domain. <laughs> waste a lot of time. <laughs> but, so that's like four levels organizationally. But uh, their latest estimate is that it's about the size of the Netherlands. Okay, that sounds terrible, right? But it turns out that the Netherlands is one half of 1% of global energy consumption. So the, the, the counter to that is, there, there are two broad counters. One is, well, you need to evaluate that against other creation of value or even just other electricity usage. The largest one would be the financial system as a whole, which uses huge amounts of computational power, takes up lots of real estate. It has very high uh, usage of electricity and produces almost nothing. Right. (laughs) It just moves money from one place to another and then takes little slices of it with every motion. So less and less have they been a a capital raising function uh, as they might have traditionally been in some places. So that's one comparison. The other comparison you can make is with gold mining or other resource mining. And what you find is that the the biggest meta argument here is that Bitcoin does have a intrinsic value as it does Ethereum and that their intrinsic value has been going up. So when you consume electricity to create Bitcoin and Ethereum, you're not just consuming electricity. It's part of a production process. Hmm. You're in a industry that's uh, over $40 billion a year of producing value. And when they produce that much value this year, next year, that's, those coins that they produce this year are going to be worth even more on average than they were this year. Right. And in fact, the, the growth rate is something like, you know, it's approaching 100% per year, at least historically. And now it may slow down a bit, but you're producing something of, of real value and quasi-permanent value going forward and increasing value. Whereas if you use the electricity to charge your Tesla and drive to work, it's consumed. Boom, it's gone. That's actual heat. That's right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, Next one is that it's slow, that 
you are not going to get transactions per second speeds that you have for like traditional forms of money and, and, and assets. And that uh, is a big problem. Yes. And of course, we know that there are several remedies that have come into place, whether it's like a completely different consensus algorithm and trading off security for speed, or in fact, coming up with so-called layer two technologies or a multi-layer technology where you try to match the weight of the protocol to the size of the transaction. Let's chat a little bit about that. Sure. A lot of new cryptocurrencies were created because they worried about scale with Bitcoin scale. You know, it only handles seven to 10 transactions per second. It wasn't as fast as Visa, that kind of thing. But it turns out that Bitcoin, at least, doesn't really compete primarily with Visa. It competes with the SWIFT wire network and with Western Union. <laughs> All right. That's like an easy compare for anyone who's used and, it. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you're wiring money, you find that it often takes three days. In fact, I still read instances where this one, one guy, he was transferring the money from his account to his wife's account within the U.S. domestic. It took three days. They both had the accounts at the same bank. That was this year. So, wow. yeah. So the banking system is slow. It takes three days for initial settlement at the retail level. And it turns out that final settlement may not happen for a month. And when you use your credit card, final settlement doesn't happen for a month or longer. So the banks have these complex settlement networks for wire transfers and for everything else that they do, including, you know, credit card charges. And Bitcoin is a final settlement asset that does final settlement in one hour to any point on the world. So you need to compare it to the right thing, which is SWIFT, not Visa. Right. Now, there are other cryptocurrencies that, you know, we want to be more like Visa, and that could be... You know, it could be XRP, it could be Tether, which is a stable coin. It could be Ethereum, which is faster, but uh, maybe not to the Visa level. Ethereum's got its own issues of the expense of its fees right now. Right. Uh, so the way to address this is with a, a technology stack with multiple layers. And in Bitcoin's case, the multiple layers include wrapped Bitcoin, Liquid, which is a side chain, and especially Lightning, which is a second layer. And the second layer allows you to do things very, very cheaply and very, very fast. And you can do that for smaller amounts if you just want to buy coffee or even for remittances for modest amounts internationally or domestically. And then those get aggregated, batched up, and as a whole get recommitted back to the level one chain at some point, maybe a, a week later, maybe a month later is appropriate. Right on. I think that's a wonderful solution. And it seems to be catching on now because I think Lightning, in my estimation, it was a little bit slow going, but it feels like it's gathering steam. Do you see it that way too? It's growing pretty rapidly. The number of channels is now up to 80,000. The network capacity is not enormous. It's, it's a couple hundred billion, but that's what's in the channel and it can be reused to support many transactions. And it's now in an exponential growth phase. And the average node has been around for more than a year, the average channel for nearly a year. And you can monitor this on various websites. We'll show you the statistics for Lightning. Anyone can participate in Lightning. You just take a little bit of Bitcoin, you put it into a channel, and then that's, that's the capacity of transactions that can be carried through that channel. The average channels are relatively small, a few thousand dollars right now. Well, I'm really high on this idea of multi-layer 
management of these things such that at the top layer, you've got cross-chain activity. And I think that you could truly match the protocol and the consensus algorithm and its weight to the size of the transactions and the importance of the transactions that they conduct. So like you said, if I'm just buying a cup of coffee, you know, nobody's going to have a denial of service on that, really. But then if you aggregate you know, billions of coffee purchases into one big transaction, sure, for that one, we do want to really take it to the max in terms of security, et cetera. Right. All right. The next one is fees, that the fees will go up once mining starts producing fewer and fewer coins. Mm-hmm. Now, that has not really been seen with the last couple of, well, has it been seen? I don't think it's been seen with the last couple of halvings that we've had within Bitcoin. But of course, it's also about other coins. And as you mentioned before, Ethereum is pretty expensive right now or has been with the NFT craze. Right. So fees in Bitcoin are pretty low right now. They're about $5. So if you want to send $100 or $1,000, it's not too much of an issue. And uh, lightning fees are essentially nothing. I mean, they're as low as one sat and a sat is 100 million of a Bitcoin. So there they're really are virtually nothing. Pennies. Yeah. No, they're not even pennies. They're tiny fractions of a penny, like three zero dot zero 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 six pennies, you know, dollar. You're saying a hundred million is a really big number. <laughs> so uh yeah, a, a sat is uh a sat is point six of a mil and a mil is a thousandth of a dollar. So they're they're tiny. Now but Ethereum has an issue right now where the, the fees are running 10 times higher than that, up in the $50 sort of space. And this has been basically DeFi and NFTs that have been driving those fees up, plus the architecture of Ethereum, which you know, is not really like the architecture we just described that says, okay, I want to do big things on the base layer, and I want to do small things in the second layer and higher layers. Ethereum tries to do really a lot down on the base layer. And so that's been a real scaling issue for them. And that's why they have this roadmap to Ethereum 2.0 that they're in the midst of. And furthermore, it's one of the reasons why they're going to move away from proof of work and move to proof of stake. Hmm. There there are two motivators for them for why they want to move to proof of stake. One is they want to cut electricity consumption. The other is that uh, they believe that it'll give them better scaling in terms of transaction throughput and lower fee costs. Right. And in fact, all of their competition is essentially proof of stake. There are a few others, you know, yes. but, but I think fundamentally proof of stake is like the second most common, maybe even the, maybe even the, the most common. It, it is the most common. Yeah. You know, yeah. there are only 700 proof of work coins and only a few of those matter. Uh, there are thousands of proof of stake coins. The two most important ones are three most important ones are Binance, Solano, and Cardano. And particularly Solano and Cardano, you know, these are the most important in market cap, are looking to to compete with Ethereum in in the DeFi space. Right. And I think Avalanche is coming right behind them. Yes. All right. So the next one, and this is actually a good segue to the next one, because the next one is these crypto coins really aren't money for transactions because there are scaling and the fees and it's too, and especially for about Bitcoin, it's really too valuable because it's like gold and I'm not going to spend my gold buying a cup of coffee that I'm just going to like never sell it. And there are, of course, Bitcoin maximalists who, you know, buy and 
you're talking, Huddle, you're talking to one. <laughs> you're talking. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So uh, what we are, of course, seeing is that what you just mentioned is that there are other chains that are coming with proof of stake or proof of history or directed acyclic graphs and other sorts of proofs of uh, consensus algorithms that are way faster, albeit strictly speaking, perhaps not as secure as the kind of proof of work that Bitcoin enforces. So let's talk about that because this is also very relevant to DeFi, decentralized finance, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, smart contracts, what I call programmable right management, and what promises to be a pretty major future of cryptocurrencies in general. That's very open. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very open question. In fact, I'm searching for the question in there. Well, the question is that the assertion that cryptocurrencies are not money for transactions because they're not scaling and the fees are too high. And in fact, the ones that really matter are not the ones that I'm going to want to spend isn't panning out in reality. That in reality, there is like a substantially growing body of transactions that are happening, especially motivated by NFTs and DeFi that seem to go against that assertion. Right. So I would say right now, these are private or semi-private or corporate monies that are used within particular communities to varying degrees. Bitcoin is essentially used either for savings or longer-term investment, but also for trading and and certainly speculation, no doubt. But it, it ends up being the ultimate settlement asset for the cryptocurrency universe. Mm-hmm. And what you find is that anytime somebody wants to start up a new activity, an entrepreneurial venture, start a new ICO, start a decentralized exchange, and they want some funding, what do they ask you to send them in order to get their new coin? They ask you to send them Bitcoin or Ethereum. Right. Those two, one could say, end up being the underlying capital structures and final settlement assets for different communities. Now, Ethereum is there to support a variety of different communities. The decentralized finance, which is where people are doing yield-seeking, uh, staking, you know, so they're staking either Ethereum or they're staking one of these yield-seeking tokens, and they're putting it maybe onto a decentralized exchange, and they're getting some return, and then they may move to another token. So they're playing a money game or a finance game. Or there's the NFT world where artists and sports leagues and stars and musicians, potentially it could be any kind of image or document you could make an NFT of, but right now we're seeing it in arts and sports the most, where they want to take something, could be a piece of art that they created, it could be they dunked the basketball, right? Some sports star, some little video clip, and that becomes a unique property and somebody wants to buy that property because they're a collector of those kinds of things. Right. Okay, let's do one more. And I'm sort of rapidly concluding that we need to do this more often because <laughs> <laughs> there's just so many more items that are left. And maybe we will, in fact, schedule another one. And I actually want to tell everybody who's listening to go and look up our previous podcast from a year ago because we did a short history of crypto and covered a lot of the topics in succession. And all that material continues to be pretty valid. And we've had until, I think as of now, we've had over a thousand listeners to that particular episode. So it's been well received. So the next one is really about China, that 
China is at that time. This is no longer true because of what you said earlier, but the FUD at that time was that, hey, three quarters of all Bitcoin is mined in China and it's too centralized and the miners have too much power and they can hijack this thing. And that was like one thing. And then the flip side was that it's too dependent on electricity and on internet. And both of those are in question in a rapidly growing economy like that. In reality, that hasn't happened either. Good. Well, let's address those. So having all the mining concentrated in China, or up to three quarters of it, by the beginning of this year, it was down in the 60 to 65% range. That was a concern because one can, in principle, 51% attack the Bitcoin network. If you have more than half of the mining, you could undo or double spend the last one or two blocks. Now, you can't do undo the whole blockchain. It's exponentially harder with each block that you go deeper. But maybe you could do a hard fork and grab the chain or something. So that was a concern. But it turned out that while the largest pools were based in China and the largest farms were based in China, that they were competing with each other. And you know, it, it would take three or four of these colluding together. And, and that never really developed. And also, even though the pool might have been hosted in China and have even most of its hash rate in China, most of these pools were open. So anybody could contribute their computer that they had in mom's basement where they were living off mom's electricity bill and they could just contribute their mining rig or a couple of mining rigs into that pool and get a proportional share of the rewards. And that's how mm -hmm. most of these mining pools work. Now that China has shut down most mining, there's certainly some mining still going on, sub Rosa, you know, people are hiding it in their own basements over there for sure, to some degree. But it's it's mostly evaporated. And now we find that it's, you know, migrated to the West and it's going to be distributed across more countries than, than ever before. So that concern is greatly lessened. It's greatly lessened. And in fact, in my view, it was a it was an excellent test of the resilience of blockchain and Bitcoin's network, because it didn't take it long to get right back to the way it was. It was like literally just a matter of a few weeks after the ban took place. Yeah, it restored most of the hash power within a few weeks. It took a few months to get back to the old high, roughly old high level where it is now. Right. By the way, for people who like supercomputing, that's the exa world. It's about 150 exa hashes per second. Nice. And exa is 10 to the power of 18, everybody. Yes. So we're talking 10 to the 20th hash calculations per second that all of the pools across the world, from little miners to big, big collections, you know, are doing every second to compete with each other in order to get the winning block and get the block reward of 6.25 Bitcoin. Highly competitive sport there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the second one was uh, dependence on electricity and internet. Sure. Well, the entire internet is never going to go down, I don't think. The worst case would be solar storm, and that could take down large swaths of things. You can actually send Bitcoin with smoke signals. You don't have to use the internet, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly the most convenient. You uh, could do it with letters, really, I, I, with, I, with post. You, yeah. could, you, could, you could mail it. You could, you could mail your code <laughs> to somebody, your 12 or 24 words. Of course, then they would take your whole wallet. So that's a little tricky. <laughs> you, could, you could use USB sticks. You could meet in a coffee shop like the one we're virtually talking in now and hand somebody a USB stick with it. So there, there, there are ways around. But clearly, you want to have the internet for the miners, for the full nodes that keep many copies of Ledger and for, for transactions. Yes. You know, if the whole internet goes down, the, 
the earth, the globe, and the 7.8 billion people have a bigger problem than, than Bitcoin. In fact, the whole banking system goes down if that happens. The whole banking system goes down. And the same is true, of course, with electricity and your friendly ATM. Right on, right on. All right. Maybe this is a good spot to stop. And then we come back with additional items. There's so much we didn't discuss. NFTs, CBDCs, on and on and on. So any closing thoughts? I think cryptocurrency crossed the chasm around the time that Facebook announced Libra. And now what happened since then? They changed the name from Libra to Diem. And then they had to change the name of Facebook as well. To Meta, that's right. <laughs> well, we say Carpe Diem for that, I guess. Diem, by the way, still has not been released, just as Meta is something we're all waiting for. I would say it's a little aspirational right now. Yes. <laughs> One last word, by the way. Go for it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Bitcoin's market cap is now higher than Meta's market cap. <laughs> More hodlers there than there. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Steve. Until next time, everybody, please do go and check out the other podcasts that we have up there. Send us letters, postcards, tweets, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Hey, great talking with you, Shane. Likewise. Thank you, Steve. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye for now. Good stuff. Good stuff.